legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Jason Horsley, who joins us to discuss his book, The Kubrickon, The Cult of Kubrick, Attention Capture, and The Inception of AI. It's hardly controversial to suggest that the 24-7 mass media matrix in which untold millions are immersed might be doing much more harm than good. But what of this addictive, obsessive diet of godly lit screens and never-ending noise was actually the core of an agenda to mesmerize and manipulate humanity towards much darker ends. With our collective disconnect from reality already well underway, trash culture, sometimes disguised as art, is creating a subspecies for whom the distinction between fact and fiction will soon no longer exist. People with a susceptibility to being programmed, or even possessed, by outside influences. And the purpose? The harvesting of human sentience for the seeding of machine intelligence. Hello and welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us once again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hello, Greg. Now, Jason, you've got a new book just out, um, something maybe a, a little bit of a surprise for those of, those of us that have followed your work for a while because we weren't sure if we were going to get any more books from you. Uh, this one's entitled The Kubrickon, The Cult of Kubrick, Attention Capture and the Inception of AI. Uh, before we get started, just tell listeners who perhaps are not familiar with your work a little bit about yourself, just where you are at this point in time. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I wasn't planning to write any more books because I've just moved to Spain, northern Spain, to do what I think is known as homesteading in the US. I don't know what we call it in Britain. Uh, it's not It's not really farming as yet, but we do Crofting, have... Crofting, maybe. Crofting. Small holding. Small holding. Okay, these are terms are not familiar to me, uh, nor is the lifestyle. But um, that's basically my trajectory... Now, I thought my last book was 16 Maps of Hell, which was self-published, um, with, a, with a rough draft of the exit, was the footnote to the title. And that sort of speaks for it, itself, I think, that uh, my writing and podcasting career of about 30 years or something has been, certainly with hindsight, but somewhat consciously from the start, has been about mapping hell uh, at, at all the levels that I could access cognitively, because if you're going to write it down as sentences, you have to have some cognitive access. Um, so, yeah, from the personal to the political, uh, the social, the, the parapolitical, the parasocial, but also the metaphysical uh, somewhat. I mean, when my early books, I had a pseudonym of A.L.S. Kefis, and I did get into metaphysical, but I don't really consider those early books to be very reliable trustworthy as maps and uh, uh, 
in my 40s, I, I embarked on in, on a new uh, trajectory as a writer, among, you know, among other things, pretty much with Paper Tiger, I think, and then, then there was Seen and Not Seen and Prisoner Infinity and Vice of Kings and Dark Oasis, 60 Mats Fat, and all these books are essentially what I just described there, is just trying to get a sense of the uh, landscape, the lay of the landscape, the invisible landscape, to steal a phrase from Terence McKenna, who I don't like or respect, but um, of of malevolence, of organised malevolence, and uh, as a way to extricate myself from complicity with that system, which, as I indicated, is not just, as I see it, not just social or societal, but metaphysical. And um, it, by the same token, and what's even harder, perhaps, is extricate it from from myself. So, so my books and my my writing and my speaking and podcasting, and I, I currently run groups and do one to ones. They've all been oriented towards this process of um, becoming whole. It's just that it became more conscious in the last few years that I was writing because I had to write and I had to write because something had been put in me or uh, was controlling me that I needed desperately to get free from. And writing was one of the ways that I just instinctively gravitated towards. Um, but it was really a means and not an end. So don't consider my books or my podcasts particularly of value as artifacts, but as pointers, like as maps, by which people can do the work themselves, uh, but also begin the work just by observing closely somebody else who's doing the work, who's who's been doing it that much longer, let's say. I mean, I presume, if they're not familiar, I mean, most people aren't familiar, I think. There's conspiracy theory, as you know all too well, and there's occultism, and there's various different disciplines or belief systems, but I consider them all pretty much what I call second matrix, which is another, I don't want to go off on another tangent there, but um, just to sum up there, that my view about these things is the mapping and the exploring and the describing is worthless unless it represents one's own journey to out of hell and back back to natural existence, um and and thereby the work is is rooted and grounded in that so that it's not only effective for myself as a communicator but also useful to others as something that's ex- practical and experiential rather than just theoretical okay so the, the kubrick mentioned in the title of the book uh is stanley kubrick uh the yeah. uh, the film director uh people that listeners can't bring a film title to mind. This is the guy, 2001, The Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Eyes Wide Shut, just a few examples of his films that were, you know, picked up a more substantial audience. But this is, Kubrick's just one example, really. You're talking throughout the book, and I know you did a lot of your other work about all the collective compounded effects of the culture and media that were steeped in uh what's behind that where it comes from what it's for is regarding kubrick you said i'm paraphrasing you know from the book central to the thesis of the kubrickon but not only are kubrick's movies not what they seem but they are also not what a growing consensus of kubrick revisionists claim they are this is only a deeper darker level of seeming a second matrix which again you've just referred to so 
why did you select Kubrick as a kind of as as an example um, on which to hang your other concepts and ideas? Is it just because he was it's such a in some ways extreme example of the, some of the phenomena that you're speaking about in in culture? Well, you just said you just gave an introduction of Kubrick, and it occurred to me that it, if ever the phrase "this man needs no introduction" applied, it would be with Kubrick. Like you can't really avoid having heard about Kubrick and even having some opinion about him if you're in the Western world, certainly if you're into mass media, anyway, culture. Um, so that's number one. Like he's he's a big fish. The fish that I've gone after in the past. Well, they've been of varying sizes, for those who don't know. I mean, uh, Whitley Strieber, for example, is a, is a big fish in a small pond. Uh, Crowley, well, he's a very big fish in terms of influence, but he's still fairly marginal. Kubrick's just a big fish in a big fo- pond. He's a worldly influence. Like, he's considered one of two or three most influential filmmakers and movie cinema film is considered the most influential art form of the 20th century. I mean, it's recognized as such. So, and to me, most influential means most effective and most useful as propaganda. So it's inevitable. I mean, my first books were about movies uh, as a film critic, but even in those days of the blood poets, my first published books, I, uh, I considered those books Trojan horses as in a sense, I consider all my books. And um, I, I wanted to use writing about film, not just to express and explore my love of film back then, because I was really just in love with movies back then. But I was also aware of the other, the parapolitical, the hidden metaphysical evil that was underneath the system, including Hollywood. So I wanted to use those books as a way, not just to write about movies, but also to write about the the aspects of society and existence that uh, you c- can't really generally talk or write about, certainly not in academia, I think, and not because it was an academic book. But, I mean, you can, but not outside of s- a certain fringe uh, areas like New Age and occultism and stuff. Like that. So I was trying to write a kind of mainstream thing, uh, rather rashly or foolishly, I think. Anyway, uh, Kubrick... Uh, yeah, he's a he's a, a, a hugely influential figure, and he's always been on my radar because I've always been into movies. However, the question, why did I select Kubrick? I think the best answer is I didn't. Uh, as with all my books, pretty much I think, at least in the the, the phase that I just described, that I think is the meaningful work I've done. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I ever chose to start writing a book. Never mind what the subject was exactly well there's, there's a bit of a there's two things going on there because sometimes i did choose to write like prison infinity you could say began as an essay about willie streber so i certainly did choose to write about willie streber but i didn't choose to write a book about him i just uh it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually okay this has to be a book i'm going to need a bigger boat as they say in jaws um so and with kubrick it was uh it wasn't even that i I wanted to write an article about Kubrick. Actually, it was just that uh, he kept popping up, and it there was it wasn't just in the movie. Like I, I write about movies, so obviously I was aware of Kubrick and people who love Kubrick in that field. But also, as you know, in the conspiratainment uh, field of of you know YouTube videos about conspiracy theories and stuff, Kubrick pops up an awful lot, and the 
I would say the most most interesting Kubrick currently in terms of sheer numbers and websites and stuff is probably, in fact, definitely is in the conspiratainment crowd or the synchromistics and or as as an overlap, if they're still around, who are looking for clues to the riddles of the universe in Kubrick. And so and I knew a lot of those people or some of those people and so he just kept coming up and bugging me is the answer. And and so I kept going back to look at the guy and then I and then I started to come up with a theory about him and then I started to test the theory and the more I did the more interesting it got and the more it extended into these other areas, as you mentioned, that are genuinely interesting to me and I think genuinely much more relevant to all of us than Kubrick per se, although I do I think I I try and succeed to make Kubrick more relevant, just in a much in a very different way. Well, I used the um, that little part of the introduction where I said, "In case you don't know," and then rattled off a few films. I did that, I think, because because I thought about what you just said. I've spoken to a few people in just casual conversation about the man and his films since we began the process. You know, you sent me the book, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and. I found quite a few people knew the film titles, but not the they're not the guy's name. They couldn't tell you who this what this guy had done. It might have rung a bell, and and a lot of these are, a lot of these are younger people as well. Yeah, I mean, you right. know, I'm talking about in their twenties, yeah. uh, early twenties, so like much younger than you or I. You know, to the sort of age of if we had kids that, that they might be now. Yeah, and um, it reminds me of like you know currently, for example. Maybe the, the position that they're in with somebody like Kubrick is how I might find myself with what's popular in cinema now, for example, all of these Marvel and superhero films. I have no idea who directed any of these things in recent years or who worked on them, you know, who produced them. I, just, I couldn't tell you a single thing about the, the minds behind them. Um, yeah. I can infer things from the evidence, but I, I don't know. So that's why I did it because it was like Stanley Who sort of thing, and I know you yeah. said amazing, but there, there it is, you know. So yeah, no, it's really perhaps not that amazing, and maybe a better analogy would be something like Sandra Bernard or Fatty Arbuckle or somebody who was huge in the gen to the generations prior to us, or Errol Flynn, say to name somebody that at least some people have heard of still. But yeah, of course, time moves on. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so that, but that's interesting to consider that. Um, maybe we don't have time to do that now, but just in the light of everything you've been saying about your work and what you're reaching towards, that there, because I, I found this a lot, not just, you know, in the recent conversations, but because I work with a lot of people that are a lot younger than me, um, you know, at least a generation difference. Uh, but I mean, I'm very interested in culture and media, and I've, I've learned to sort of, not take for granted that they've heard of things that I don't. Everybody knows Pink Floyd, The Wall. You know, yeah. uh, what do you mean you haven't heard of War of the Worlds? You know, the the the, the album, you know, that type of thing. And it's just these blank looks. And I'm even taken aback sometimes. Have you heard of the, the Cure? You know, your sisters of mercy. No, no, just blank looks. So yeah. that's I've kind of trained myself to to not make those assumptions. Yeah, well, it seemed. Like a good thing when I first when you first said it, but of course, uh, it's just new d- different strokes for different folks or new new drugs on the market. Really, it doesn't mean that people aren't addicted to being by propaganda. It's just oh like, no, not at all. And of course, it, because somebody doesn't know who Stanley Kubrick was or 
may not have heard of a particular film if they sit down to watch it doesn't mean they won't be affected by it in some way um, or that they're not being influenced by him like people have not heard of Crowley doesn't mean they're not being influenced uh, by him because of course uh, they might listen to the Beatles and people who have not heard of the Beatles are being influenced by the Beatles because all of modern pop music has been influenced by the Beatles so it's really and this will get us right to the subject I mentioned in the email which is the metaphysical uh, influence of entities uh, it gets to that like that's all of the cultural artifacts are secondary their causes with hidden effects I would say something that came to mind when I started reading your book and I spent many years over 25 years in the music business music journalism music writing and there was this phrase that uh, i was very familiar with i thought of it in relation to kubrick um and that was you know, i would often hear about um oh he's a musician's musician you see mm. what i mean it was it was coded language it was a bit like we used to it was a bit avant-garde it was sometimes coded language for this is bollocks Oh, no, he's a musician's musician. You know, it's a bit like someone trying to argue that Lou Reed's metal machine music is actually, you know, unheralded masterpiece, that type of thing. You yeah. know, you have this emperor's new clothes and people, a lot of beard stroking and, and yeah. uh, you know, nodding a sort of agreement. Well, everyone's just afraid, you know, no, everyone's afraid to say that, you know, this is this is crap. And uh, that's not a word you use with regards to Kubrick's output, far from it. But I and you also mentioned about you know, kind of marmite. I think is what you said about you know people are either raving about Kubrick or they're just you know the opposite. And it wasn't possible to be. I'm not sure what word you used, but sort of ambivalent. To be honest, that's kind of how I feel about it. About yes. his, his work, I, I've not watched any of his films twice. I don't think maybe The Shining I've watched twice. Yes. Um, I, I quite enjoyed that. I liked the score. Clockwork Orange was interesting, um, but it left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is just boring yeah. and, and Eyes Wide Shut we can talk about that maybe because it's got a bit of wider implications I think in, certainly in the conspiratainment uh, realm but again that was just I only watched it because I was in a hotel and it was in Iceland and it was the only thing I could find in English and uh, again it was just uh, May it was completely whatever you know I've never had any I've never owned any of his films I never had the urge to watch any of them again Right. Yeah. So doesn't mean I'm not affected by it, but that's honestly how I feel. No, yeah. no, no really strong feelings. Yeah. Well, to me, to my mind, as as you maybe know from reading the book, that that's a healthy response to Kubrick, and that's um, that's how I think everybody would respond to Kubrick if they hadn't fallen into the Kubrick art. Yeah. Well, as you've um, alluded to, with with the the devotees, you know, whether they're movie professionals themselves or not. There's this idea of um, coded information being imparted, you know, embedded in these movies and imparted to those in the know, um, a bit like sort of schizophrenic voices um, in some ways. And it's like being a member of a secret society, I'd imagine, in some of these um, chat rooms and, and uh, boards and whatnot. And um, a lot of what we, you talk about, the oversights in his films, sort of continuity errors and... Um, his his contempt or otherwise for the the art of filmmaking and the 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 audience. Uh, so perhaps you can say something about that because all of that obsessive seeking for clues, you know, perhaps things that are there are they not there? I don't know. It reminds me of that whole, you know, people who uh, do things like play Dark Side of the Moon at the same time as what you know the, the Wizard of Oz the movie with the sign turned down and they find all these synchronicities so called, but. Yeah. 
what I mean, what's synchronicity and what isn't? I mean, that's another another debate. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, just in case anybody is listening who really is a fan of Kubrick, and I'm sure they will be, I, I've never uh, said that he was contemptuous of. Uh, I can't remember the phrase you used, but you know, the art the art form itself. Kubrick obviously took a great deal of care with his movies. Uh, as far as the audience, yeah, I think there was an element of contempt for the audience, or at least, which isn't the same at all, a desire to confound the audience, and that's often associated with a serious artist, and I understand why, and I would agree, but I don't interpret it that way with Kubrick. I think he was up to something else. Uh, and for some reason, Joyce popped into my head, and I've never read Joyce except for Portrait of an Artist's Young Man. He's, of course, very highly regarded James Joyce, and uh, he he filled his books apparently with clues and symbolisms and things that were hard to decipher. And he is considered by the people who get Joyce, or at least claim to, sort of, I don't know if you'd say the writer's writer, but kind of the uber writer, like he's doing something that other writers didn't even attempt. And, and so that's the general view of Kubrick, at least among filmmakers, I think, but also among these synchronistic types uh, that he he was attempting something and succeeding at something that other filmmakers and other films don't do, and there I agree. However, as far as what he was involved in, I disagree. First of all, I don't think it was him individually. I think he was part of a some sort of think tank, and that he his him and his films were being used instrumentally to further this agenda, which is the, was the creation of artificial intelligence through harvesting of audience attention, attention capture. And uh, <clears throat> secondly, that the movies themselves uh, weren't, weren't meant as ordinary movies or works of art. They were, they were meant to be disguised as that, and they were definitely meant to be received as that. And this is where we get the Emperor's New Clothes thing coming in, that there was a a major part of the Kubrickon is persuading masses of people, but mainly the gatekeepers and the intelligentsia. And now we have the lower level on the internet who are just self-appointed, not exactly gatekeepers, but they're defining the narrative around Kubrick or trying to, to get these people to um, comp- uh, constantly reinforce or repeat the idea that, Kubrick is a great filmmaker and that these are great movies and that there's more going on to them than meets the eye, et cetera, et cetera. That's a major part of it. If you persuade people, just as, I mean, your example with Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz, well, if one person or two people do that and they talk about it or write about it or YouTube about it and they show their own personal evidence that something happens, that there is some correspondence between those two artifacts other people go away and they try it themselves and of course they find something because they're looking for it and then so they add their clues their evidence their data point their experience into the pool and so it grows and so it grows so yeah how much are synchronicities just there innate in the material and how much are they generated by the perception of the viewer and not not in some quantum mechanics way of shaping reality, although that's a blurry line, but just in the sense of if you look, you will find and you will, you will, because you're looking through a particular lens, you're looking for meaning. And so you are 
more likely to find meaning because you, you I mean, I, I don't know if I need to explain it, right? You, you're just trying to interpret everything. So if you try hard enough to interpret the coincidence between an image and a, and a, a note on an album, you you will discover things. But this is one of the points I had about synchronicism and even the idea of synchro- synchronicity. The, if the whole universe, if if the meaning of these clues is that the universe, more than the universe, but let's just keep it material, is is sentient and intelligent and designed, which any idiot can see, frankly, even Richard Dawkins has to allow that, then, then it's going to be throughout. You're going to find meaning absolutely everywhere because that's the nature of, of existence, is meaning. So, so what is that? It's a wild goose chase where you're surrounded by wild geese. Right? You, all you're going to find is wild geese, but it's still a wild goose chase because you don't need to chase wild geese if you're, if you're on a wild goose farm. I'm going to leave it there because <laughs> I did have more to say, but I, uh, that just seems suitably irreverent. I think. Well, it's also about about assigning meaning as well as as it, it somehow being inherent. Uh, maybe that's something that I never really did, which was I never, I never watched any of Kubrick's films, for example. Um, well, I wouldn't have had when I first saw them. I wouldn't have any information that would lead me to do this. I wasn't looking for anything in particular, very much absolutely face value, you know, which is why I found Space well, Odyssey to be boring. Exactly. I would say that's right. If you look at Kubrick's movies at face value as movies, the way you would go to Jaws, um, you come away dissatisfied and rightly. But So people have to watch them over and over again, or at least twice, three times, to, to, to get them in quotes. Right? So that's a big clue. It's not just the, the standard line is oh well he was ahead of his time he's doing something you don't you know right and he's and he's disrupting the normal patterns of cathartic entertainment let's say okay fair enough there is a reason to do that I was never into Beckett or Pinter or these guys but you know whatever I understand there's something they're trying but that's that's too standard I would say the the fact remains that his movies don't really work very well uh, after from two thousand and one on even Dr. Strangelove, in a way, they don't really work that well the way that movies are supposed to work. Now, I'm not saying that that's like, I'm not saying that Jaws is harmless just because it works on this surface level as entertainment. Of course not. It's still serving to infiltrate, you know, and and, and corrupt us, let's say, or influence us. But um, Kubrick, I guess he was after higher game and uh, there's something there that is very central to my argument, which is that you have to, and it's in the art world, and you were you were kind of circling around it with the Lou Reed analogy. You have to persuade yourself to believe something that you know instinctively is untrue. You have to start. You have to reconfigure your your perceptions to enjoy a Kubrick movie. Why? Why would you do that? Yeah, and again, paraphrasing from the book, uh, the commonplace about Kubrick films is that they do not fare well on first sight. The fact yeah. is that all of Kubrick's films require more than one viewing, which I personally, as I said, haven't given t- to them. And this, what I'm about to say now, might also be something from the book, but why isn't there then the instinctive rejection that you get with, uh, with you know, with, with heroin or whatever, even with tobacco and alcohol? I mean, I've never smoked, but I like a drink from time to time. But I, I didn't touch the stuff until I was 20. And I really had to teach myself how to do alcohol, as it were, to get to the point where it was like actually looked forward to having some. So I just wonder why there isn't that instinctive rejection. Or maybe there is at some level. Yeah. But, 
but p- people persist for whatever reason. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 so, yeah. What you're describing is the instinctive rejection. As I say, you watch the movie and you think, "What's going on? What is it? This is this isn't this isn't doing what I wanted." Uh, so you smoke a cigarette and you go, "Oh, it's made made me feel sick." But if you've got all your peer, your friends and stuff telling you, "No, no, keep trying. It's great. Smoking's great." You want to be part of the club, so you keep trying until you get over that natural reaction aversion, and you end up addicted. I would say that. In that sense, Kubrick, uh, so it's like his movies are like a gateway drug in that sense to general cultural addiction. Not to say again, obviously something like Jaws is more obviously that. Like for me personally, I saw that very young and I absolutely loved it, as did my brother. So that was a gateway to just general movie addiction. But I'd say Kubrick is taking the viewer and the experience it into a deeper layer, into a second matrix, where a, a viewer becomes not just addicted to the entertainment value, but but personally obsessed with the art form. So the a Kubrick person, Kubrick will watch The Shining hundreds of times. Imagine all of that energy and time that's going to you know an artifact that uh, basically doesn't change. I mean, it's not, it's the same each time you watch it. Yeah, you mentioned that, uh, well, actually used the phrase cognitive impairment, uh, which, and again, if you're watching something like that hundreds of times, uh, well, what what could you do hundreds of times potentially that that wouldn't do, wouldn't have some kind of effect, let's put it that way. And it was also the cumulative effect that you get. It's not like tabula rasa each time, is it? You've seen the shining once, you see it a second time. The effects may change. It may be like, I say, cumulative, like smoking one cigarette, smoking 100 cigarettes. You know, yeah. doing heroin once, doing it ten times, and it starts with the deleterious effects. And you mentioned that there's a quote, a particular sort of intellectual enrapturement that Kubrick's films tend to invoke in people, uh, one that seems to go along with susceptibility to being possessed or programmed by outside influences. And this made me think of something else I was reading at the same time about um, hypnotism and about you know a certain proportion of people that cannot be hypnotized. And certainly that was something that was very much in my mind as we went through the whole uh, pandemic phase uh, that some people seem to be. I mean, can you imagine um, COVID-19 directed by Stanley Kubrick? Mm -hmm. Um, It was like some people, uh, you know, most people seem to be very caught up in the narrative, like it was a movie, but they somehow, they, they found themselves on the screen and some of us, we're, we're kind of like we're watching on. Like we're aware that there's something playing out on the screen, and that, you know we're not that we have life separate from it. And this is something that the, the projector has begun, and at some point the reel will run out. But for most people, it's not like that. Yeah, well, I didn't really have a very clear response to that. Just the the mass formation thing, which maybe you've podcasted about. I don't know, and the cult. Obviously, the cult of Kubrick's there in the title, as is in the attention capture. Um, the uh, the desire to to be—I mean, that I had that experience too around COVID, observing what's called what, I, what is called LARPing, but I, I used it in this context: live action role play. Uh, I do think that people—they've they've moved into mass formation around the COVID narrative, and then around the mRNA pseudo solution. Um, because they had been primed, obviously in a number of different ways, 
that we could talk about, but here we're talking about Kubrick and movies, they've been primed by movies and fictional narratives, TV shows about pandemics. I mean, the zombie thing being the obvious thing that really has captured several generations now. Uh, but there's no, I mean, there's not an obvious correlation between COVID and zombies, but it's plague at least. Um, and, and the response is the, you know, the state of emergency and the martial law and the clampdown and that kind of re- the response thing. Um, it did seem to me very much so that people were, uh, 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 I'll finish the sentence first, but I was just seeing the irony of this, that they were enjoying being immersed in, in a, a fake narrative, because I would say it was fake, most of the COVID stuff, or at least it was misrepresented. Um, uh, what I was going to say, but I know the irony that occurred to me, maybe that's enough about that. They they just got swept into it. So it wasn't simply fear. It was the enjoyment of dramatizing the fear and stepping up as as citizens and uh, conscientious people whatever you know they were motivated by desire to be virtuous and seen as virtuous and to engage in this collective drama as a crisis but the irony that occurred to me here was that most of what these people were doing to show that they were on board that they were participating in the grand drama and being responsible citizens were staying at home and watching tv and movies and scrolling on their phones right so it's very symmetrical i think there's there's a great deal in that example uh and it and it brings together the third thing in in the subtitle which is the inception of ai so you've got on the one hand you've got the cult of kubrick can be the cult of covid just take your pick everything is cults essentially in terms of people masses form around some belief and they signal back and forth we believe the same we believe the same and they reinforce it i could say about smoking and then you have the um attention capture which obviously there's no cult of kubrick or covid or anything without capturing people's attention but those two things feed into each other like the more people more attention is captured the bigger the cult the bigger the cult the more attention is being captured and then the, but then the third thing which isn't obviously connected is the inception of ai and uh i just connected it in the analogy and that and it's more and more apparent that people who are masses that are forming into cults and having their attention captured around whatever image or narrative or belief system it is, uh, they're doing so more and more on the internet and on their devices. And and that's where AI is is feeding, is being informed, is being infused, is, is gathering data. I mean, it's a bit difficult to talk about AI as an it, um, but the machinery the, the the hardware, the software, the devices, and the internet itself as this system, soft system, because because it's it's five G now, so it's it's in the whole ecosphere. Maybe um, that it is gathering data and and um, di- di- directing it, harvesting. I'm not sure what would you say, concentrating it into a in, into something that is potentially moving towards sentience or moving towards at least some simulation of what people will accept as as artificial intelligence that concludes part one of our interview part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com legalizefreedom.com